Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of 4 to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Today is my great honor to talk with Holly Riding's Chief Flight Director for NASA. It is her job to oversee mission control in Houston, where her team supports ongoing launches as well as the round-the-clock support of the International Space Station. A while back, I was able to spend some time in mission control observing their ongoing operations, which has led to this conversation. Today, we will talk about how someone becomes the first female chief flight director for NASA, what it is like in mission control during an immersion event such as an EVA, how flight directors have learned to optimize communication both virtually and in person, the need for humans to explore, as well as some of the big changes she has seen in her career and some of the changes she anticipates in the future. Lastly, as always, we'll end by asking her some recommendations on making us all 1% better. Welcome, Holly Ridings, to the TeamCast. Holly, how does a person get to be you, right? How do you get to be a flight control and then end up being a chief flight director? Certainly. Uh, I'm happy to answer the question. First, I'll say thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, Preston's one of my favorite people in the world. And through him, I've I've met hopefully many of the people that are listening to this podcast. So it's an honor to to be able to talk to everyone today. In terms of flight control, right? So we use that term for the team that's on the ground supporting our astronauts in space, right? And so we're not folks that are actually flying. Those are those are our, our astronauts and our, our international partner astronauts, cosmonauts, um, is the term that the Russians use. So if you think about flight controllers, right, folks that sit in mission control, how do you, how does that happen? Mostly you get a degree in some form of engineering, you know, math, physics, and then uh, you decide you're excited about about aerospace and and just as importantly, operations, right? So most of us are engineers, and engineers love to design things, develop things, but the operations gene that some of us have lends itself a little bit towards creating teams of folks, which of course is why, you know, we're here today talking about it and and figuring out the human aspect of sort of where engineering meets the humans. So when you become a flight controller, uh, engineering degree, you show up, you work for NASA, we have contractors as well that sit in mission control and you kind of go back to school, right? You take your engineering or your your math, your physics degree, and and study a specific system. So I started out understanding the thermal systems on the International Space Station. There's also, you know, avionics, communication, you know, power, life support. And so you come in and you specialize in an area, do a bunch of uh, learning uh, that culminates in some simulations where you practice taking care of that system for the spacecraft that that you're designated to. In my case, it was the International Space Station. And so once you uh, pass that test, that simulation, then you get to sit in mission control day in, day out for Space Station 24-7, 365. There's somebody sitting in those seats watching over those systems and, and our crew members that, that live on board. From a flight director standpoint, how do you become a flight director? So typically you've specialized and then a flight director is sort of going back to the, the integrated big picture. So you'll come out, typically if you come through the NASA ranks, you'll come out of a single system and end up uh, learning all of the systems across the, your designated spacecraft, again, in this case, International Space Station. And more important, you know, now it's your responsibility to manage the communication uh, with the crew on board, you know, the larger teams that help you when you solve problems and really supply the leadership of, of mission control. So like Preston said, we just hired four new flight directors. So when they're certified, we'll be up to 101 total flight directors in the history of human spaceflight, which really is amazing if you, if you think about it. So we're entrusted, you know, with a lot of responsibility. And that's kind of the the basics of of how you end up going through the flight control wings and then and then to to the flight director chair. 
Nice. So I think when I think about and having shadowed you in Mission Control at the Chris Craft Mission Control Center in Houston, and I know you've met Chris Craft and, and understand to be a very, very kind gentleman. I've not met him. When you're in that room, if I remember correctly, I think I counted 22 seats, 22 consoles. Is it is something around that? And it has things, all the things you described. There's a console for electronics and communications and you know, water and all sorts. I'm making these up. You should correct me. But all the different <laughs> components that are broken down. And I kind of want you just to, for the listeners, to describe what it's like to walk in. As a chief flight director, you walk in that room during, say, a normal event. And then we're going to talk about a non-normal event. Normal event. What's what's the feel? What's it like on a shift? Yeah. So, you know, as the chief flight director, I have somewhere between 25 and 30 flight directors that report to me. One of them is always sitting in the chair in mission control, taking care of the International Space Station. They also are responsible and I am responsible for really all of NASA's human spaceflight operations. So we support our commercial crew program, Artemis, right? So back to the moon in 2024, which is exciting. So we have flight directors sort of deployed in on assignment and leadership positions that all then come back together as as our team and, and our office. So when I walk in as the chief, you know, usually there's one of the flight directors that works for me sitting in the chair. So we'll talk about the International Space Station. If the crew is awake, so they're awake, you know, they have a crew day, they wake up, we talk to them, kind of a morning planning conference, they go about their day, they have their day scripted out for them down to about five minute intervals. They have time to, you know, eat and exercise, but the rest of their day is largely dedicated to science. And then we do from the ground a lot of the maintenance and care and feeding of the space station. So let's take, for example, we did a spacewalk this past week. And this was for reference February 1st when the spacewalk happened. And so the days leading up to that, we were doing a lot of robotic activity. So the crews up there preparing their spacesuits, studying their procedures. Mike Hopkins and uh, Victor Glover, Ike, who were going out on the spacewalk. The other crew members doing their tasks, science. On the ground, uh, we were doing a lot of robotic activities. We could actually drive the robotic arm from the ground. The crew can do it on orbit as well, which they did during the spacewalk. But we did that in preparation. So, you know, you have the robotics officer called the robo sitting at their console. You have we actually uh, changed out a battery, lithium ion battery. And so our Spartan, those are the power guys, you know, are getting ready to do that. So you have to, you know, power things up, power things down. It's like your house, right? If you're going to work on a part of your house, you go flip the circuit breaker so you don't hurt yourself when you're out there working on it. So those are just sort of typical ground activities. We do Obviously, maintenance of, of consumables, making sure, you know, the air's got the right amount of, of oxygen, getting rid of the carbon dioxide. So we run all of all of those things from the ground on a daily basis. And that, you know, each day is a little bit different. Some days, heavy science days. Some days, like this day, doing robotics to get ready for the spacewalk. Some days we're preparing for a vehicle to come to the space station or leave the space station where you have to change the, the attitude. So y'all patrol, right, where you point your solar rays you know, at the sun, away from the sun. Those are all activities we do from, from the ground. Thanks. When I was, was with you, one of the things I didn't really understand, and I'd like you to take a minute to explain, is the concept of a loop. And so you've got... <laughs> You've got these 20 some folks sitting at all these little, not these little, but these their their consoles. And to their left or to their right, sort of poised on a bracket is a sort of a smaller, thicker iPad. And then this iPad is a series of channels. Those channels are channels of communication to a number of different people in the NASA network. And so if I understand it correctly, the loops both connect the people within that mission control, connect with the space station, but also connect with a bunch of other people in the network. Is that is that an accurate description? Yes. So, you know, other terms you might hear besides loops, we use loops, uh, you know, nets. So when I sit in, you know, military sort of launched vehicle style mission controls, they talk about nets, they talk on the nets. And then obviously folks out in the field, a lot of comm channels over, you know, walkie talkies, handheld devices, that type of thing. So really the loops are just our communication system. And you're right. You can talk internal to folks, you know, physically in the room with you, you know, in mission control 
in Houston and then all over the world. So think about it, you know, it's like a mini switchboard sitting, you know, at your workstation, which we call a console, right? So you've got your computer that's getting telemetry and, you know, data down from the, the spacecraft. Again, we were using the examples, the space station. We can send commands to the space station also through that, through that console, through that workstation. And then we do have the box. It's like a mini switchboard, right? So you can configure it. And some of the loops, right, our nets, we we hear and talk to the crew members. They're called space to grounds. That's what their title is. So you push a little button that says space to ground. And then you can talk to the crew. Now, obviously, we also do a thing that's called enabling and disabling. Not everybody can talk on that loop, that net, and make sense. Everyone, you know, listening to the podcast probably has some familiarity with, you know, loop, we'll call it protocol, right? Who talks on which loop? And so we have a flight director loop, and that's really sort of the clearinghouse. That's the top level. If you need to get hold of the flight director and tell them something's going on in your system, you know, you call on the flight loop. And so that that's the top of the pyramid in terms of, of protocol. So not only can you talk to your international partners all over the world, there also is a sort of hierarchy that we all learn to the to the loop system, back room nets, back room loops, front room, you know, loops, and then the flight loop. And if you have an emergency or an immersion event, everyone sort of immediately knows that protocol and all the chatter stops. And then you're kind of on this, this top level of controlling flight director loop in order to, to figure out what you need to do. So that that's the way it works, at least for us in mission control. Yeah. So the, that was, that was really well said. And so when I was there and observing and the way uh, I had a bunch of questions about just the behaviors in the room itself in mission control. And so what I was observing was you had, you, you, obviously people have seen the pictures of mission control. I encourage you to go Google it. There's a billion pictures. Or if you've seen Apollo 13 or many movies, they're modern versions of a very similar kind of a room setup where you've got rows of consoles that are, that are next to each other and in front and behind each other. And in this one particular situation, there was a situation between a computer system or a battery system and the electronic system. Those are two different systems, if I remember correctly. And there was starting to be a problem with one that was backing into the other. And these two individuals were starting to talk to one another on the loop. But they were also, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, they were also talking to the people who owned and built those systems around the world. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, so yes, that's accurate. So I, I think about it in, in terms of layers, right? So your flight control team, again, on the ground and mission control, and our international partners also have internet, their own mission controls. They're, they're kind of your front line of defense, right? So every day we execute the plan, and then if something goes wrong, you know, we've got safe the systems on board, you know, keep the crew safe, which is our highest priority. And and then you have beyond that layers of people that you can draw on their expertise, subject matter experts in the individual components and individual systems on the space station, all the way back to, you know, people who even, you know, developed and built and, and tested them. And so whereas our operations team in Mission Control, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, we also have what we call them, you know, engineering support that comes in, you know, goes through the data with sort of a, a fine tooth cone, you know, very, very detailed. And then also we can we can call on them uh, whenever we need them for for additional, you know, sort of deep, deep knowledge of, of things that are going on 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 the vehicle. Nice. When I was there, one of the things I found really interesting was that when those two individuals were working the problem that was whatever problem anomaly was in front of them, at some point when they realized that this thing was starting to, this issue was starting to escalate beyond just a small problem that it had the potential to escalate, though both individuals stood up. And when I asked you all why that happens, the initial response was, we don't really know, that's just what we do. But what's super interesting is that in that room, it makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of different people talking on a lot of different systems. But when two people in the room stand up and turn and start talking to one another, it tends to really get everyone's attention to there is something happening. So it's sort of like an early warning system to the entire room to say, hey, these two people are having a thing and this thing might turn into a bigger thing. Is that a fair description of what I was looking at? Yeah, and it is a fair description. And there's sort of a lot maybe balled up in, in your statement. Operations fundamentally you know, has boundary conditions, right? And so we call those boundary conditions you know, rules, right? We call, we call them flight rules. Other people 
might call the mission rules. And so we have definitions of things that as our as the operations team were sort of allowed to do without you know further discussion with our deep technical experts or even you know what we call our 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 programs right so the folks where we get the requirements from for what we're supposed to execute right it's sort of like calling back to to HQ to your bosses type of thing if if folks are familiar with it that way so we have we have this envelope. We have so we have flight rules, right? We have all of our procedures, and we have a certain amount of a predetermined. We'll call it analysis. Okay, can I fly the spaceship facing the sun this way, and it doesn't get too hot or get too cold? Or you know, can I leave the boxes on for X amount of time before they get too hot or too cold? So I'm using thermal examples, but there's there's lots of that. And so once you start to get outside of that sort of predetermined operational envelope that that's when you get that sense of like mm, okay you know what what's going on here now if it's a tactical problem the crew's in danger the spacecraft's in danger then the operations team does what they need to but if it's not a tactical problem like hey this data looks a little funny and you know we don't have any documentation and no one's seen it before that's when you start to get that body language of mm, all right this is this is a little bit interesting and and what's going on and and I can, you know, I can walk in the door. It's funny. I could like pull into my parking spot and walk in the door. You know, you're not even even close to the control room yet. And I, I feel like now after so much time, like I can feel if everything's just running smooth or if something's going on. I mean, it's really interesting. And so without any sound, without any, you know, voice loops, you can look at the room, even though still the same volume level, everybody's still sitting calmly at their, you know, their console at their works workstation there's just like a almost a tenseness in their body language that you can tell that they're getting outside of this this operational envelope and then the folks with a lot of experience have have really never seen that particular particular issue before and so i do think that's that's when you get more of the the voice discussion you know more of the eye to eye because it it goes from sort of this well-oiled machine to now we're transitioning into this new space of discussion where it requires a lot more back and forth conversational style. One of the things we it's really important to us at Mission Control is that people both alternately totally know their stuff and have absolute recommendations and then can turn around the very next minute and tell you they really don't know what's going on, you know, very humbly. And so it's kind of right in that space where you start to see the body language change. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, just to pause on that one point, because I think it's so important right now, especially when so many teams are working in virtual environments, because there are many systems, medicine is one, aircraft carriers, we've seen it before, where this notion of cultural elasticity, where you've got a team working together, and this there's these technical systems, which are binary, they're on or they're off but they all have to work together. And the humans provide a little bit of elasticity to buy each member of the team, either speed things up or slow things down to make sure the whole thing moves forward. And a lot of that's done through body language, through tone, through all these things. And in a virtual environment now, we're not getting those cues. And it becomes harder or or there's more emphasis now required to really articulate when you've got just a bad feeling. Like you've got no data, but there's something about this that just seems a little weird and you want to let everyone know that. And I I just, having watched the flight controls, it's really interesting how they embody that. Yeah. You know, we've had lots of discussions about that, you know, in the last uh, many months with the pandemic going on and we have some of our training, you know, transitioned to virtual, but we have, maintained the top level practice, the simulation before you get certified, you know, in, in person, because we don't want anyone to be certified to sit in mission control, you know, until we've evaluated them really, really face to face. And obviously mission control itself still face to face. So when we think about this idea of communication during what it feels like to walk into mission control and you get a sense of when when things are working and when things are not working. And that just takes time and experience. And one of the things that I'm super interested in talking to you about is routine environments. We talk about contingency-based environments and we talk about critical environments. It's a military concept, right? So routine environment is we're making the donuts. It's the stuff that we predicted. It's the checklist. We're following them. And then something happens where it's not 
it's not going according to plan, but we have a contingency for it. So we just pull out the contingency plan. And then critical is we actually don't have a contingency. We've got to figure this out and, and sort of discover a solution in the moment. And so a couple of things about that that I kind of want you to talk about. One is, what is it like? We recently had, as you know, Chris Cassidy and Drew Morgan on the show, and they talked about when Luca's face mask or, or, or helmet began to fill up with water and, and how that became a really interesting emergent event. And part of what's going on there is that it wasn't initially identified as a threat. It was initially identified as maybe a technical problem that needed to get resolved. And so you as, you as flight director, your kind of throttle control for when are things routine, when when do we implement contingencies, and then when do we, hey, no kidding, like, we got to throttle all the way down because this thing is not what we were expecting, or we don't actually have a contingency for this. And so I didn't know if you wanted to comment on either that scenario or a scenario that you've actually been in where you're having to moderate or sort of take leadership in those moments. Yeah, so you know the the spacewalk is a really good analogy for those three categories, and it, it's fun that you got to talk to to Chris and to Drew. You know, spacewalks typically we plan them sometimes years in advance. The crew that actually ends up on orbit doing that spacewalk often gets to practice it. We have a big pool, you know, NBL Neutral Buoyancy Lab, where you put on a spacesuit and they, you know, think scuba, right? So they weigh you out and and you try to kind of emulate what it'll be like to do on orbit. So it's a very, it's not exactly making the donuts, but it's got a lot of planning behind it, right? I mean, down to turn wrench, three turns type thing. Built into that plan is that second category, lots of contingency. Okay. I turn the wrench three turns and it doesn't work. Okay. I go to my, you know, they call it a, a crib sheet, but it's, you know, a contingency sheet. Okay. Can I apply more torque or less torque or use a different tool? You know, I mean, down to that level of detail for, for contingencies for all of the activities on a, on a spacewalk. And then you also have the sort of bigger contingencies, right? One of the suits stops working and you've got to get the crew member back to the airlock, you know, quickly and safely. And so there are a lot of sort of operational envelope things that you apply, how far away you can be from each other, you know, how far away you are from the airlock and how quickly you can get back. And we calculate all that. So that's all kind of in that pre-planned contingency category. The third one you're talking about really with this immersion event, ideally that happens, you know, rarely, right? Because we've done all this pre-planning, but certainly water in the helmet, you know, it started out, it's not, it's not the routine category. You're not supposed to get water in the helmet, but maybe in that middle contingency category. Okay. You know, let's go to this, this crib sheet, this contingency sheet and see what's going on with the suit, you know, move a valve here. There's water that can come out of, you know, your drink bag or, you know, a couple other places in the suit. And they start working the problem in that normal contingency category. And then after a while, you realize, you know, this is this is much worse. You know, some based on the feedback from the crew member, you know, obviously Chris had had the opportunity to to get over there, you know, right near right near where Luca was and and really was able to give us some feedback on the ground that he thought that this was this was outside of of the realm of expertise. So, you know, when you transition is is multiple factors. I'd say that for an event like this, which is very crew centric, right? Different than maybe just a system failure. A lot of it is the combination of, you know, the crew members on orbit and where they think we are. Again, that spectrum of sort of making the donuts all the way to the immersion event, along with the team on the ground and, and sort of how many options you have, right? I mean, if you've, if you've kind of blitzed through all of your normal contingency options and are pretty quickly in this realm of this doesn't, doesn't look right, is not responding to any of the things that we pre-plan contingencies that we've thought of, you transition pretty quickly to that that immersion event. And in, in this case, the good news is that we had already discussed, you know, how do you get the crew member back? There's a protocol where, you know, one crew member helps the other in this buddy system where there's two people out on a spacewalk. So we still used some of that predetermined contingency envelope to get them back safely. But the failure itself, you came to the conclusion it was an immersion event. I, I think it ramped up a little bit slowly in the beginning. Okay, you know, we can solve this problem. And, and we approach every problem like that. You know, again, the folks you work with, there's a lot of like, don't panic, we'll figure this out, it'll all be okay, everybody stay super calm, right? And so you just cycle through all of the ideas that you have. And then in this particular case, I think based on the crew members themselves, and again, perfectly calm, but kind of saying, hey, you know, this doesn't seem quite quite like what we're talking about. 
and the team on the ground really, you know, not having other options to to understand what was going on. You get into that critical event and and then in spacewalk, you're really just getting them back to the airlock, right? That's that's your safe zone. Outside in a spacewalk, there's there's nothing to help you. There's no resources. You got to get them back inside. And so it all turns into how quickly can you get the crew back to the airlock from wherever they are out on the space station? And if you think about the space station, it's big, right? You know, length, length of a football field, even bigger if you consider the solar rays. They can be pretty far away, you know, from the airlock. And it's it's long way back, you know, and they're going hand over hand. You know, they have these tethers that are, you know, kind of thin wires strung out from their home base all the way to out where they are. And they've got to, you know, go along this tether, get all the way back. And so it really just turns into a how quickly can you get back and get them safe in terms of how you handle that immersion event. Nice. So, you know, you and I obviously have talked a lot about selection. And one of the really interesting things about mission control is how the role of the flight director oh, since world, you know, the end in the fifties have both stayed the same and changed like because of increased complexity, the introduction of commercial space, different missions, different kinds of things that you've done over the years. And so in this particular moment, these non let's call them nonlinear critical events, right? You're hiring people for a variety of things, and much like what we talk about with open heart surgical teams, where the beginning part of the surgery is actually pretty routine, and then they turn off the heart, and they've got to do a whole bunch of stuff in about 45 minutes, or or, they risk clots in the brain, and then they do that, and then they go to close up, and the next 45 minutes are actually back to very, very routine, like, like fixing a knee, and my experience with observing flight directors is very similar. There's a lot of very normal stuff that you're doing. And then every once in a while, you've got to pivot and really, really start thinking in not totally nonlinear ways, but certainly creative ways. And so when you're thinking about sort of what what goes well or what doesn't, or however you want to describe this in terms of thinking about as we, we, you know, just looking at the new flight director class or other classes, what are the kinds of traits, attributes, characteristics, whatever you want term you want to use of what right looks like and feels like for you in the role of a flight controller or a flight director? Yeah. So again, you know, there's, there's a lot in that question, right? So we'll maybe start by talking about another form of kind of an immersion event. So, you know, I was describing the the spacewalk and arguably the most dangerous thing, you know, other than launching potentially that the crew does, they're going outside in their little spacesuit, but it's also kind of a closed team and then everyone knows everyone, right? Now we've got other dynamic operations. And so by that, we mean things that are not, you know, just the crews going about their day spacewalks, you know, launches, landings, uh, bring in vehicles, you know, to rendezvous, you know, and dock with the space station, having them leave the space station. Those are all dynamic events. And so with the way human spaceflight is going, we've got lots of both government and non-government entities developing spacecraft. There's there's a lot of new, right? I mean, spacecraft fundamentally, you got a communication system, you have power, you know, if a crew's in it, you got to have, you know, air to breathe, consumables. So the basic systems are the same, but how you implement them, how they work in space, the specific technology that the individual builders choose, you know, all of that is a little bit different. So we're in human spaceflight in a period where there's a tremendous amount of development going on. And so you end up flying, you know, spacecraft for the first time. And in that process, you get immersion events as well. And so for me, I I was lucky enough to lead the very first Dragon cargo, so not crewed, but cargo mission to the space station in 2012. And so the SpaceX team launches this, uh, you know, brand new Dragon full of cargo. It flies through space and it gets close to the space station, you know, where I'm in charge of the space station itself and also that joint operation where they're bringing the Dragon up to the space station. And, and we actually grabbed it with a robotic arm and, and then attached it to the space station. And so in that event, the Dragon that's close to the space station and its, uh, you know, navigation system, which is which is brand new, you know, isn't doing exactly what we saw on the ground. And so this is an immersion event, right? We've built our operational envelope. We have our rules. You know, we have our analysis. And now we're outside of that area, right? So you got a couple options. You know, one of them is to send the spacecraft away and try another day. 
obviously a new spacecraft in space, the longer it flies, you know, the more risk you're accumulating that you might not actually be able to get the mission done, or you can, you know, try to figure it out, which is ultimately what we did. That was a lot of backstory to say that immersion event now required, you know, my NASA team and Mission Control in Houston on the SpaceX operations team, you know, and they are in, in Hawthorne in California to work together as a team. And so we certainly knew them and had spent multiple years building relationships, but that is different priorities, different culture, different background, different ways of, of discussing technical issues and trying to, to coalesce into a team to make very quick decisions. The spacecraft sitting 120 meters from the space station out in space, the crew's on board the space station, you're trying to figure out what to do. Do we keep going? Or, you know, and, and you've only got so much propulsion, so much fuel and, and so much power to sit there and talk about it. So as we go forward and look for flight directors, an immersion event and being able to make decisions under pressure is is vitally important, right? You have to have an amazing technical background and be able to sort the wheat, you know, the the wheat from the chaff kind of thing, right? What's important. But you also have to be able to bring together teams in a way that is maybe not intuitive from an engineering standpoint, because you have our international partners, you have all of our commercial providers, and everyone speaks, we'll call it a slightly different language, even though it's not all exactly a different language, but when you consider culture and priorities and things. So looking for people has, in my opinion, transitioned a little bit from just sort of the purely technical rock stars who can, you know, think of every contingency and solve the technical problem to also need to include the, you know, the team builders, right? The folks that can communicate, that can bring teams together in a way that is meaningful to every team member so that people will sort of show up with their A game when you need it. And that that is a challenging skill to find in, you know, a single person, you know, be super technical and also be a great, a great team builder. I think it's what's really interesting and fascinating to me about listening to what you're talking about is how much it parallels so many other teams in the mission critical team community. And so when you think about law enforcement, when you think about fire, when you think about response to big disasters or what's happening in hospitals right now with the need to do tactical swarms where you're coming together with a bunch of people you've never met. And this is now leveraging a whole bunch of people that used to work on intact teams with established relationships and habits and everything else, just like you're just describing. And now we're taking these same people and we're putting them in environments where they actually need to rapidly build trust and cohesion with a group of people they've never met. And failure to do that can be catastrophic. No matter how good they are technically, if they cannot get the rest of the humans in the network, what we call a liquid network, all flowing together, if we can't get them flowing in the same direction, then all the technical skills won't matter because the whole thing will come to a grinding halt. Yeah, so Preston, this is why we're friends because you, you know, say things in such a great organized, organized way, right? That people can understand. You know, when you use the word swarm, you know, that resonates with me, right? Because if we have a real problem, like if my phone went off while we're doing this in the next five minutes, you know, there's a big problem on the space station. I would hang up and I'd run across the street and and be in mission control in just a few minutes and and people would just come. It, it's interesting. Like, how does anybody even find out? But people would just come and show up and offer their services in one way that's amazing right human spaceflight resonates with so many people everybody wants to help on the other hand then you got like hundreds of people everybody sitting around looking at each other and how do you like that's not always good right so we got to solve the problem so you know flight, flight directors in general right you know whatever it takes you know other duties as assigned right i mean it might be like organizing people in a conference room and covid it might be figuring out you know what the next three steps are with some technical problem and and so the swarm have you ever seen that game of perfection as a kid you know it's like a square box you know maybe a a foot a foot wide foot tall and it, all the p pieces are like funny shapes and you set a timer yeah. and you have to stick all the pieces in their funny shape before the whole thing pops up in your face right and game game of yeah. perfection and so to me often solving a problem especially under time critical pressure is figuring out like which piece you should be that day and or helping get all the pieces in their slots, you know, before the time, the time runs out. And so that fluidity, right. Or, or permeability is, is a word I've heard recently that I, I like is a really tough skill because again, my job as a flight director and certainly as the chief flight director 
could be different on any given day. Some days it might be very technical. We need to do these three things. And some days it might be just assigning puzzle pieces and getting them in the right place in order for the team to function better. So finding that skill, that fluidity and the ability to look at problems that way, coupled again with, with really technical talent, I think is is kind of where operations is is going as human spaceflight at least you know, sort of gets more complex in its, in its team makeup, like you were, you were describing earlier. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because every one of the teams that I work with, there's a stereotype, right? You can just pick it like the FBI or the Navy SEALs or the FDNY. Every one of them comes with stereotypes. They're not always true, but occasionally they are right. And which is actually leads to a lot of humor. And when I first started working with you guys in mission control, you let me know, hey, Preston, you're going to bump into some straight up engineers. And truly, they're going to have a conversation with you and you will just stare at them because you literally, you'll ask them a question and they'll give you an answer. And that answer will make absolutely no sense to you, but totally makes sense to them. And that happened a few times. And I realized because of the stereotype of just giving a really black and white answer to a nuanced question and not understanding why that answer isn't being received. And it, it, it doesn't happen all the time. It was very rare that I encounter that at NASA. But when I do, I always laugh. I was like, oh, this is what Holly was trying to explain to me. <laughs> and it, it's it's always that moment. And so I, I put that out there because, you know, NASA is has this incredibly rich legacy, right? It's, it's world famous. And it's world famous because of certain characteristics. And so as you as the chief flight director and you're thinking about your legacy and you're thinking about the future, certainly in the next 10 years, how do you think about balancing the stuff that got you here, the traits, the attributes, the personalities, right? And holding on to some of that, exactly like what you were talking about, we still need the technical expertise. And yet at the same time, knowing we're going to need to build these networks. So how do you actually go about thinking about that? Yeah, so it's a good question. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. You know, over the last several years, I've really developed an interest in sort of evolving leadership, right? NASA is an amazing system, right? Technical competence. We've already talked about trust and teamwork and a little bit about communication, but that communication and, and sort of the savviness that goes with it, right? The sense of, of how to function on a team as they form and then break apart and then form again is something that it can be hard to learn inside, we'll call it a closed system, right? Where you don't spend a lot of time interfacing with other groups that are like you. So actually, you know, for me, one of the catalysts was originally meeting you and and getting involved, you know, with your your Mission Critical Team Institute was to find out that there are groups of people who are, you know, all essentially working on the same problems, but have enough difference in their language, the way they describe it, or the details of the problem where it you can communicate, right? You can translate back and forth and the translators are becoming increasingly important, but you can translate back and forth, but then also still have enough commonality where you can learn something from it. And so I think about exposure a lot. Um, and actually it's been difficult because of the pandemic, right? No one is really traveling the way we used to. We're not seeing people face to face. And and so trying to continuously expose, you know, the flight directors in particular as leaders of human spaceflight to, you know, outside perspectives. And again, not just, you know, I'm building pump A, you know, with this widget instead of that widget, more from a sort of communication leadership perspective so that they can think about different ways to bring teams together and to form them. You know, we, we've kind of started talking about this analogy with, with operations, right? So we do operations differently depending on who we're flying with. And by that, I mean, which spacecraft is coming to the space station? Is that an international partner? Is that a commercial company on from the outside, like at the 10,000 foot level, you launch a vehicle and it rendezvous with the space station and it's all the same. But but the details of how we interact with each of those teams are are different because we have, and so have they sort of optimized for the cultural differences, for the geographic differences, for the technical differences in the spacecraft. And so really trying to understand how and why we did that. A little bit of it just happened organically, but now we have enough of a stable, enough of a group of different spacecraft that we fly and different partners and different providers where we can go back and say, hey, wait, we're doing it a little bit different with partner A than partner B. 
like, why did that happen? And is there something valuable in that that we can understand and then continue to push back into our system as we're bringing people up through the ranks? So I think we're we're trying to focus on the data we have and then really have those conversations at a much earlier stage in people's development. Like I said earlier, used to you could get you know pretty far just with your technical competence uh, still required, but that alone won't get you there anymore. Yeah. Another thing you and I have talked a lot, a lot, as you know, I'm especially fascinated by the human factor. And if you looked at the history of aviation, for example, and you sort of put it next to the history of spaceflight, one of the things that you see is that the, the original problem is how do you keep the craft in the sky without falling down and exploding? And what's interesting now is that once the airline industry figured that out, what became problem was the pilots and the crew. And right now we're at a place in space where the primary focus is how do you make sure everything keeps working? But there won't be that much longer before we have a critical number of people, especially with the emergence of private astronauts, people that are going up there for pay, where we're suddenly we're putting the monkeys in the tubes and they're going to start pressing buttons. And we're going to have to sort of think about what do we do about the human factor? How do we optimize human factor? And not just for astronauts, but also for mission control and the integration between them. And then to add some complexity, the joint cognitive systems that integrate the human with the machine. And so as we move forward, I think it's just really fascinating to reflect back what you just said, which is this idea that you, you can't get there without the technical factor, but the technical factor isn't enough to get you where you need to go. And that's a lot to be throw at you just then, but I didn't know if you had any, any thoughts you just want to share. Yeah, it's always fun to talk to you, Preston, right? It makes me think as well. And so, you know, you talked about our culture at the very beginning of, of this and, and all the way back to, you know, not slightly after World War II. And, and so trying to take those foundational components of our culture that are still true today, right? So we have a, a foundations of a flight operations that hangs on the wall in, in mission control. Part of it is to always be aware that suddenly and unexpectedly we may find ourselves in a role where our performance has ultimate consequences, right? So we've talked about that immersion, life and death of the crew members. And so as we then try to sort of open the aperture of human spaceflight and have more spacecraft that are built uh, across the world and have more teams that are operating them across the world. You mentioned, you know, how more people that are flying in the spaceships across the world. You mentioned private astronauts. How do we keep that anchor true, but also then have enough flexibility in our own thinking, in the way that we discuss and manage risk, right? Because we bring everything back to risk. How much risk is it to the humans flying in space to make decision A or B? So again, how do we anchor in that in that history and that culture and have enough flexibility in our uh, in our discussions going forward to account for widening this aperture? And that that balance is really a challenge for all of us as we go forward as leaders, we definitely believe in moving forward, right? Getting back to the moon, you know, commercial space, but having multiple teams of people now all over the world who in many cases actually are part of the responsibility chain for, you know, the astronauts that I am responsible for. How do you resolve that, right? I can't control everything anymore in, in maybe the way I used to, or at least thought I used to be able to, Right. And and so how do you become comfortable with that? And I don't know that I know the answer, but that is that is definitely where we are looking for thought and leadership going forward. Because otherwise, if we just keep saying, well, here's our culture and, you know, no, we don't do it that way. Well, you know, we're not doing our duty, right, as, you know, employees of the federal government and, and our, our nation's space program to, to move forward but we also want to do it safely. And so that's a, that's a big challenge for us to figure it out. As you know, I'm super fascinated by this, by this subject. And I think NASA has a lot to teach the rest of the world on thinking about to how, how to operationalize risk and safe, right? How to think about sustainably navigating uncertainty by both recognizing it's there and recognizing that we can, some cases influence, in some cases not, but having some honest discussions about what can be controlled and what can't. 
I think you know NASA is is unique in that way is that that their business is risk. It will always be risk. The nature of to dare to explore these things, right? To unite in the in the words of of Holly, these are are going to remain really important. And and I would argue truly American. At the same time, there's a number of cultures around the world that also have a history of exploration. It's just that within us, this desire to see what's over the next ridge line or to see what else over the next horizon. And I think space is certainly a huge horizon there. And I think it's it's extraordinary, quite honestly. As we pivot towards the, to start to close up this team cast, the one big question that I'll just throw at you is, as you've been involved in the MCTI community for a while, is there any questions that you think I should have asked you? Like, is there anything that you think, knowing the community and visiting with many teams around the world, what is the thing, is there anything in terms of interacting with uncertainty at a, at a really elite level that we need to start paying attention to? Like, is there any gaps right now that you see that we're just, not that we're doing it wrong, but we probably should pay a little more attention to? You know, actually what we were talking about there at the end in terms of risk, right? you know, to have a discussion about risk, which I don't know that I've ever done in exactly those terms with, with many of the members of the community, because risk is sort of fascinating. Is it worth it? Flying in space is inherently risky. Many of the the, the jobs that the, the teams do, obviously, very, very risky as well. So is it worth it, right? For human spaceflight, you know, we, we answer yes, it's worth it. Let's put some people in space. But Today, tomorrow, next week, you know, how much time do you spend trying to solve problems before you go? Like, where is the balance, right? I mean, you have to accept some risk because the only way not to is to stay on the ground. And I, again, for the teams, you have to accept some risk because the only way to do it is just not do, you know, whatever mission that they've been been charged with. But trying to figure out how to balance that. And then really as leaders, you know, you get input from you know, literally hundreds, thousands of subject matter experts, and all they see really is their piece of the puzzle, right? Whether that's, you know, the guy who's doing logistics or the person who's building the wrench or the person doing the structural analysis. And so then how do you as a leader make all of those people feel valued when you often have to tell them, I realize your whole world is this particular thing, but in the grand scheme of managing risk, I'm not sure I need that thing right now. Yeah. And and I think that's a real challenge in these big, big distributed systems where we depend so much on on people, you know, feeling like they're part of a team and they want to do the right thing and they're going the extra mile and you know all those things that we talk about with teamwork. And how does that how does that work with risk and how do we as leaders really really manage that and, and talk about that? I think that's a hard thing to talk about in a big distributed team and these fluid teams. And that's where you know, you bring a company in and you put them on contract and their perspective of, of risk can be very, very different than, than yours. So to me, that's, there's some value in that. Cause I think we're all managing risk. They might use different terms than I do, but that's, that's fundamentally what we're all doing all day long. Every day is managing risk. Well, I think just to bring this back to where we first started, actually, one of the conversations that was really enlightening for me that you and I had was you've got all these consoles and mission control and every single person owns their problem. They own their system and they they take it very seriously. And you as the flight director and, and you you, you're the one telling me this, so I'm telling it to people, but it's your story to tell. You as a flight director have to evaluate the three different people talking to you that all believe that their situation is the most dire and that what they need is the most important. And they obviously all three can't be. And as a leader in that environment, you have to occasionally dial people up and dial people down. And as a leader, you know, talking about risk and risk perception, but also, you know, trading risks or risk mitigation, or however we talk about this, sort of a day-to-day role that you have and the dynamics that go into that has got to be pretty interesting on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I agree. And it's something, you know, you kind of asked what, what should we talking about. I, I don't know that even personally I've ever really spent a lot of time thinking, okay, how do how do I do that individually? I mean, I think some people who knows good mentors, natural skills arrive at the ability to dial that up and down in the members of their team, right? Because it's yeah. kind of a human human challenge, right? 
and it works well. And everyone walks away thinking, yeah, we focused on the right thing and we made the right choice. And the people who got dialed down aren't kind of over in the corner pouting type of thing. But, but I've also seen it where, where it doesn't go well. Right. right. I mean, then people are feeling like they got ignored and they didn't get heard and the team's going the wrong direction and so on and so forth. So, you know, how, what are the sort of best practices, you know, tips and tricks, you know, can, can any of us as leaders decompose that for ourselves to, to even have a valuable conversation about it. So now you've given me, and I've given me homework in this podcast, <laughs> right? This is fantastic. This is why, this is why I really enjoy you, Preston. You always make me think. So now I got to go, okay, how can I even explain that to myself? But I do think that'd be a really interesting discussion to have with some of the other leaders of the other teams who are part of, of MCTI. Like, what do they do? You know, what are your best practices and, and get beyond just the, the surface, right? I mean, there's some basic surfaces, you know, okay, well, try to praise in public and criticize in private, but, but beyond that level, right? You know, what, how do you really manage it? Well, a, a few years ago, when when you and I went down to, I think, uh, Fort Bragg, if I remember correctly, and mm-hmm. it was this idea of what are the commonalities between a task force for Joint Special Operations Command, let's call it the New York City, either Fire or Police Department Operations Center and Mission Control in Houston. And obviously there's differences for sure, but there's also humans and machines and data and information and constrained time. So there's a lot of overlap as well. And I think what you're getting at, you know, and that came up in those discussions is how do you both calibrate sort of risk threats and opportunities? And then how do you communicate that to the team in a way that they at least acknowledge and understand? Or maybe not, depending on you know how critical the environment is. And I think, how do you build a culture that can do that, that's highly adaptive? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's just, to your point, I think it's something incredibly worth studying. Yeah, when I first got met you and got involved in MCTI, right? I, I think it, the first couple of years we're just figuring out how to translate. Like, hey, yeah. there's all these other people who kind of sound like they have the same problems I do. Wow, what an amazing revelation, right? And so I kind of went through that that process. And now that I know there are people out there who we can talk in enough commonality, but also have you know a disruptive factor, and who are in fact trying to solve you know many similar problems. I do think for those of us that have been doing it a while, kind of trying to go to that next level of how we really lead beyond just the basic translation of our environments to see lessons. I mean, we can, we can, though those of us that have been doing this, this a little bit with you, see that now, but that next level at the leadership level, you know, would be, would be really worth exploring to me. So let's do that. It sounds fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll figure something out. So the, the as we sort of come to the close, our traditional sort of final questions, I'm going to modify it a little bit because typically what we'll, we'd ask you to do is give advice to what people can do differently on Monday. And I think just because having experienced with you a little bit of the, the recent selection of flight directors, you know, there's going to come a point where those folks are getting ready to step onto the floor for the first time, right? And when you think about what is the sort of pieces of advice that you would give them as they're walking onto the floor to take their first shift as a flight director, what are the sort of high level, sort of almost philosophical kinds of things that you'd kind of share with them? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I, uh, I've i been thinking about it a little bit. So I'm I'm like a bullet kind of person, right? So the first one is is a little bit of Colin Powell, right? They, I'm going to paraphrase, but you know, thing, things are not as bad as they seem, you know, look at it again in the morning type of thing. And so things are not as bad as they seem, even on the worst day in mission control, you know, trying to bring the dragon in, it's it's not working quite right. You know, I was on console when our Russian colleagues crashed a, a cargo vehicle, unmanned cargo vehicle called the Progress into the back of the space station. It was challenging, but, you know, just things are not as bad as they seem and just take a deep breath and work the problem. Right now, everyone who's on one of these teams is chosen because hopefully they don't panic. But even beyond not panicking, there's a a point where you truly believe that it's just not as bad as it seems at first. Right. That there's going to be a way that you get through this and you have to have that that belief system. On the flip side of that, the other piece of advice is, you know, every day when you walk in the mission control, you should be. You should feel a little tingle, like a little bit of trepidation, right? Otherwise, you shouldn't be there. 
So, you know, if it ever gets to where it's sort of flat for you, you shouldn't be there. Now, obviously the, the new guys, when they, they get certified, they don't have that problem, but you know, there's a day where you're tired and you're burned out and, you know, especially in, in the pandemic. And, and so you have to watch yourself. No one is going to watch you being a flight director. And in some ways it's a, it's an incredible team, but it, but it's also an, as a leader, it's an individual endeavor, right? You are the leader everywhere you go. Oftentimes me as the chief or your other flight directors will not be there. So if you run yourself ragged, if you burn yourself out, if you get in over your head, you must be able to recognize that in yourself because we have to to trust you, you know, out in the field on your own. And for new flight directors, you know, that is is probably the top two pieces of advice. It's never as bad as it seems because, you know, this is like the first time they've ever seen this stuff as flight directors, right? So everything looks a little scary. And the second one is you have to, you know, have this algorithm running. How am I doing? Do I need to to call for help? Am I pushing too hard? Because because you are on your own and and no one will bail you out if you if you go too far. So those are kind of my two biggies. I think they're really important. And it's interesting because I, I'm hearing um, very similar versions of that, both of those things from a lot of different teams, right? This idea of you've just got to maintain a solution-focused mindset, right? Like, yeah, it's and it's not as bad, so don't get wrapped around your axle, right? And then this, this second thing of, of just this constant learning or relearning or or discipline of self-awareness just getting better at knowing yourself know thyself right and just when are you being honest with yourself about the situation and when aren't you being and and how do you how do you build the sort of ways to do that the other thing that you provoked for me or made or resonated with me is a question I ask a lot of people. And it started with the FDNY when a friend of ours basically asked me, well Preston, do you know how hot is hot? And it was a great question, right? Because if you if you ask a fireman that question, it's actually a very complicated question. If you ask people in your world or in tactical law enforcement or in surgery, if you ask them, how long is 60 seconds? It's a really interesting question because there isn't a straight answer to those questions. There should be, but there isn't. They seem like simple questions. How hot is hot? How long is 60 seconds? But if you're in the life they take on colors and depths and everything else. And I think it takes a, a long time to learn those. And the reason I say that is because I actually think that your pieces of advice are really helpful as a way to start moving down the path to get a handle around those kinds of things, those kind of those unseen variables that you just need a couple of laps to start to see and understand. Yeah. You know, when, when you were talking about it, I was, I was going back through my, my two pieces of advice and, that second one about, you know, you've you've got to do your own self-regulation, I think has become number two on the list during the pandemic, right? We used to all see each other face-to-face. And so uh, we do still in mission control, but it's definitely not as much. And so, you know, we could spot in each other. The third one or the piece that goes with that is, although you have to recognize because you may not be the only one there, the other flip is then to remember as soon as you recognize, hey, I need some help here, you are not alone, right? So that's the other part for the new flight directors. And we we really start at the beginning telling them from day one, you know, you are going to be in mission control by yourself, but this is a team. You can call any of the flight directors. You can call us. You know, there's all there's all these other uh, resources out there. And so I think we've we've always done a good job of of, hey, you're not alone but the self-awareness of when you need to use that resource has taken on a, a sort of a more important discussion point in the, in the pandemic as, as people are, are separated and just, you know, looking at screens and you just don't get the context clues. I just think I just can't emphasize enough how important what you just said is, right? It's just, as I go around to all the teams, I think it gets lost sometimes, this idea that people think because they're supposed to be a superstar, the best in the world, that it's all on their shoulders. And we constantly have to remind them that you're on a team. You're never alone. You should never be alone. There should be people around you, and but they can't read your mind, right? And so you've got to get in the habit of how do you leverage that team around you? How do you actively do it? Because people want to be asked they want to be included they want to be involved they want to support and just i i just think especially with the pandemic this concept of you're not alone is so important yeah every everyone wants to help save the world right if right. you'll just if you'll just let them you know for me it's interesting you asked about advice and i kind of cycled through you know stuff in my head that i say 
I would tell you the last six, eight, 10 months, you know, it's actually almost all about simplifying it. So I think the things that I said are are pretty basic, but I also feel like, you know, we got to go back to basics a little bit, right? I mean, if the world has gotten complex and has changed. And so for me, going back, you know, to the original anchor points of, of the foundations and then how do we handle the the evolution of spaceflight and how do we remain patient and realize that yeah it's changing but maybe it's not as bad or as good in that case as it looks at first blush like very basic so you know from a leadership standpoint what i've been telling myself is just go back to the basics right kind of kind of try to shake off all of the the muck that's yeah. that seems to be out there at the moment, right? Is yeah. is kind of how I think about it. So, you know, whether that's helpful, I know, I know for me, I'm just trying to keep it clean and simple in terms of of doing my job every day. No, I I look, I I 100 agree, and and I also am reminded. I recently heard Admiral McRaven give a talk, and one of the things that related to this that he said that I'll never forget. He said, "Look, what you have to understand if you if you've never been at war is that war is easy. It's just that easy is hard." And and I was like, I get that. I actually do get that. And it's a little bit of what you're describing is that, look, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is easy, but the easy is hard because there's a lot of moving parts. It's very fluid. It's critical. It's urgent. It's constrained. All these things. It's not that they're hard, not that they're complicated, but they are hard and that's okay. And the way through that is to try to simplify as much as you can. And I think there's some wisdom in that. There's some real wisdom in that for sure. Yep. I, I definitely agree. That's, that's good wisdom. You know, the world we live in, when we explain it to other people, and this is true for many of the teams, you know, somebody on the street, they just shake their head at us. Like, you know, that's what you do every day. And it, and it seems normal, right? It's our, it's our world, but it is, it is complex and it is challenging, you know, both from a technical standpoint, you know, flying in space and, and from the human aspect of it, right? Because, you know, humans add a lot of complexities in terms of how we interface, but that's the fun part, right? Trying to, trying to figure it out. But it it does really behoove us to just take a deep breath. And so whenever we hire new flight directors, you know, back to your question, this this is really the value to myself and to the office is we've got to go back a little bit to first principles, right? What do we believe as an organization? What do we need to convey to them? And I had a former boss and he was like three to five things, three to five things, you know, and I'm a person who probably tends to talk too much. And so it's helpful to have new flight directors and focus on three to five things and tell them three to five things. And three is better than five over and over and over because we got to go back to first principles while we train them. And then it helps us again, sort of do the reps and, and clear out some of that dust or the muck or whatever. So last question before we do some final wrap ups, uh, we'd be getting a lot of requests to just ask the folks that we talk to, are there any books that you would recommend? <laughs> like, is there anything that you're reading that that people should maybe think about picking up? Not that you have time to read, Oh, no, this is a great question. I could talk super intelligently about Wings of Fire or Spirit Animals or Harry Potter. And for everybody listening to this, my son is nine years old. So, you know, just I'm I'm being somewhat obnoxious, although actually I could be talk very intelligently about it. But so I spend a lot of time reading children's books or at least listening to them with with my son. But in, in all seriousness, right, if I uh, the last thing I read for like my own personal adult adult level interest from a from a fun standpoint is a series called The Spiral Wars by Joel Shepard. And it's science fiction, like just science fiction, you know, way out in the future. But but it was really fun because it's like there's all these different um, races of people and how they interact. And one of the main characters is like, you know, the captain of the spaceship and how he interacts with his bridge and his team members. And and the guy writes it in a way that was was thoughtful. And actually for for me on a personal level, like it was well done enough where I could really think through their interaction in the context of of my job. So it was just kind of fun, right, to think about that. So Spiral Wars, Joel Shepard, if you're looking for sort of leadership stuff, I mentioned Colin Powell earlier. I've I've read his, uh, you know, sort of Colin Powell's rules 20 years over and over and over again. I just, you know, I believe in that sort of single sentence. It, to me, it, I have to have something to focus on. And so there's the, there's the, Hey, I go back and I focus on these principles. And then the other one I've read lately, and actually my husband found this one is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, if you haven't done Atomic Habits and, and that one's, you know, sort of some 
actionable ways to change your habits. Again, somewhat pandemic related, I think everybody's gotten into bad habits. And so just sort of a reset of how to manage your habits. And I'll, you know, this is an oldie but a goodie, but I love good to great because I'm a big fan of like the type of yep. leadership. And so I think about that constantly as the chief, right? I don't want to be the leader who like, yeah, the organization's awesome, but as soon as I leave, the whole thing falls apart, right? right? You, I think that's the type four. And you want to be the the type of leader that, hey, the organization's awesome. And when I leave, it's stronger than it was when I got there, right? And so again, just having a super simple reminder to to focus on. So, you know, those are the ones I've gone back to probably in the last six, six months, the the Colin Powell's, you know, rules, good to great, and then atomic habits, kind of oldies but goodies, maybe. I but but I but that's where I'm kind of at in my thought process is just go back and anchor, you know, and and get it done. Well, I just really want to thank you for taking time on a Saturday afternoon when you should be hanging out with your kids to talk with us. <laughs> um, I know it's been hard to pin you down to actually find a time. So I'm I'm super grateful. And I personally just really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot and uh, it was super fun. So um, look forward to seeing you next time. And, it's, and I'll, I'll leave you with any closing comments if you have any. Really just to say thanks again. I mean, you know, Preston, you're you're one of my favorite people whenever I uh, have an opportunity. I talk about, you know, MCTI and the amazing people I've met. Uh, you know, it's sort of become, you know, everybody has an origin story. Like, why did I get into human spaceflight? You know, which goes back to when I was young. But then we'll call it my leadership evolution story. You know, origin story part two really, you know, starts a few years back when I first met you and and the MCTI community. And so it's, you know, a very, very valuable part of my personal development and also just friendships. It's nice to know that there are folks around the world who are working on hard problems and who think a little bit like we do. It always puts a smile on my face to think about all of them. So thanks for having me. Thank you. And it's it's good to reference you are not alone, right? Like a lot of other people working on this problem. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks again, Ollie. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Preston. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.